This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for this opportunity to proclaim Your name, to hear of Your grace and Your mercy in the sending of Jesus Christ. Father, show us our Savior. Show us the, the truth uh, that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And then show us the truth that, that you are that Savior that we need and that we have uh, simply through faith. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 37 this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. It's officially that time of year when gifts begin to appear around the house. Now, you might be the kind of family that doesn't make a big deal out of gifts. Your kids know from a young age that Santa doesn't exist. Or maybe you're the kind that would be insulted if I broke the news to your 15-year-old that Santa is a hoax. Either way, this time of year is synonymous with giving gifts. So it doesn't matter who you are, one of the things every kid does at some point in their life is they have inspected the boxes. From afar, you look at its size and shape to see if that would give anything away. You pick it up to see if the weight might betray something about what's inside. Then, of course, you shake it, see if you can hear anything rattle around inside that would tell you what it is. And I'm not pointing fingers, but hopefully your parents didn't tape a brick to the bottom of a large box with something small inside. (laughs) But I bring up this idea because this morning we are going to inspect a box. Except this isn't any ordinary box. This is the most important box in all of history. I've titled this message, A God-Shaped Box, because this morning as we continue our Advent in Exodus series, we're going to see what the Ark of the Covenant tells us about our God. This morning I want to answer the question, what does the Ark tell us about our God? What does this God-shaped box tell us about our God? What does its construction tell us? And its context, contents and its intended use say about our God. With that in mind, look at Exodus chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel, he's the, the chief craftsman. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. 
and he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat, with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat, were the faces of the cherubim. So there it is. It doesn't seem like much, unless you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and you know it could melt your face off. <laughs> but the structure of this passage is, is actually pretty simple. Verses 1 through 5 describes a box. And verses 6 through 10 describes a lid. It's a box and a lid. This is the box we're going to inspect this morning to see what it says about our God. So what in the world could such a simple description tell us about Him? Well, let's start by looking at what the box described in verses 1 through 2 was intended to carry. God ordered them to make a box, and it was for a purpose. The first thing I want you to see is that this God-shaped box tells us about our God's miraculous provision. Tells us about our God's miraculous provision. The Bible tells us that God told Moses to put an omer of manna, which would have been about a jar, about the size of a two-liter Coke bottle, in this ark. You remember the story? We're actually going to look at a part of this next week. But you remember the story, um, Israel had been, they are being chased by the uh, Egyptian army after they left the, the Egyptian slavery. And the Egyptians chased them uh, all through the desert until they were trapped on the, the western shore of the Red Sea. So God parted the sea, Israel crossed, and God drowned the Egyptian army in the sea when they tried to follow. However, Israel's troubles weren't over yet. When they got to the other side of the Red Sea, they landed in one of the most hostile environments on the face of the earth. And it turns out that because of their sin, they weren't going to be just passing through. They were going to end up spending 40 years there. Now, to give you an idea of where they were, if you've ever seen the movie The Martian, the Mars scenes were filmed in the area where the Israelites were. And if you haven't seen The Martian, don't worry. Just know that this landscape was suitable to film a movie about Mars. In fact, I looked this up, this area up on a couple of weather websites, and here's what they said. The average rainfall in this area here is less than one inch per year, with December being the rainy month at two-tenths of an inch of precipitation. In other words, there is nothing there but a handful of lizards, couple of weeds and a lot of sand. Yet that was the place to which God led his people. But he led them there because that's where he was going to show them that he was the one who had the power to miraculously provide for them. He led them there on purpose because he wanted them to know that he could provide something out of nothing. He led them into this wasteland because he wanted them to know that unlike them, unlike mankind, 
he didn't need resources to make resources. He could make food out of nothing, and he could make as much of it as he wanted for as long as he wanted, and so he did. This manna would appear on the ground every morning, just enough for that day. They would pick it up, they would eat, they'd go to bed, and God instructed Moses to put some of this in this ark to remind them of his miraculous provision. So that's the first thing I want that this God-shaped box tells us. It tells us about our God's miraculous provision. The next thing the contents of this God-shaped box tells us about is our God's devastating power. His devastating power. Again, the Bible tells us that this box contained Aaron's staff. Now, this wasn't any old stick. No, this staff was a symbol of God's devastating power in the hands of his leaders. It was the staff that Moses held over the Nile and turned it all into blood when they were going through the plagues. It was the staff that Moses held out over the, staff, over the sand and over the dirt of the earth that turned it into gnats that devastated Egypt. It was the staff that Moses held out over the western edge of the Red Sea in order to part the ocean. And then after Israel had crossed, it was the same staff that Moses held out over the eastern edge of the Red Sea to drown the entire Egyptian army. And it was the staff that Aaron and Hur held up in Moses' hands, which allowed them to defeat, slaughter would be a better word, the Amalekites who were attacking them from behind. In fact, in, in Numbers chapter 16, there's this story about a guy named Korah who rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Basically, Korah was saying, who made you boss, Moses? And, and, and who said you get to tell us what to do, Aaron? Well, dude, it was God. I'm going to figure that out in a minute. But the story goes that God told Moses to get everyone who wasn't with Korah away from Korah and his followers. And then God opened up the earth, swallowed Korah and all of his, father, all of his followers, and put the earth back together. Now, you might think that answered the question, but it didn't. Immediately following that, even more people got angry with Moses for killing Israelites. So God said, that's it, Moses, I've had enough. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and get a staff from the leader of each of the tribes. So, so 12 staffs, including Aaron's. I want you to write their name on their staff. I want you to put it in the temple, the, the tent, and then, and then I'm going to tell you who's my leader. You come back in the morning and get the staff. So Moses came back in the morning, pulled all the staffs out of the tent, and sure enough, Aaron's staff had budded uh, flowers and had ripe almonds hanging off of it. All the other staffs just stayed sticks. And then the Bible says the 14,700 people who didn't think Moses and Aaron should kill Korah died of a plague. And so God told Moses to put that staff in the ark in case anyone else wondered who's in charge in the future. Anybody else started griping, Moses could just go get this staff and say, huh? In other words, this staff, this, this instrument of God's power, is always involved in life or death. This staff never healed a skinned knee. It didn't set a broken bone. It didn't fix a hole in a roof. 
this staff either killed people or saved them from dying, one or the other. It was the manifestation of God's power through His servant, and that power was either life-saving or life-taking. If you obeyed the Lord, this staff parted oceans and rivers and brought water out of rocks. If you didn't obey the Lord, this staff killed off your food source or drowned you or it literally opened up the earth to swallow you. Listen, take a deep breath. Let it out. God allowed you to take that breath. Take another breath. God allowed you to take that breath. If you sit quietly, can you feel or hear your heart beating? God allowed that beat, and that beat, and that beat. The simple fact is, is that the reason any one of us in here still has breath in our lungs or a beat in our heart is because God has allowed us to continue living. And the staff inside this God-shaped box, it tells us that our God has the power to move oceans, He has the power to open up the earth like a Ziploc baggie and the power to snatch the life out of anyone, anywhere, at any time he chooses, period. No complaints, no discussion, just his prerogative. In other words, this God-shaped box also tells us about our God's devastating power. But this God-shaped box describes something else about our God. It also describes our God's matchless perfection. His matchless perfection. You see, another thing Moses was told to put in this box was what was called the testimony. We call it the the Ten Commandments, the, the two tablets of stone that he received on the mountain from God. Now I want you to hold on to your shirts here because I'm going to explain something theological to you. But we believe that the law of God has a threefold purpose. There's three purposes for this law that God gave. One purpose of the law is to restrain evil. Just restrain evil in the earth in general. Now, not everyone believes in God or not everyone even knows about God. But the Bible is very clear, as is our experience, that in some way God's law is written on every heart. Even if someone doesn't believe in God, they still know in their heart that it's wrong to murder. Even if somebody doesn't even know about God, they still know in their heart that it's wrong to steal from somebody or to commit adultery. This law that Moses got is written on every heart, and in some way, shape, or form, it simply restrains evil in this world. That's the first purpose. However, on the other hand, the second purpose of the law is to guide those who do believe in God into good works. It's to instruct people who are saved on how they are to live. In other words, the law tells believers like us how to to please God and obey Him. That's the second purpose of the law. Which brings us to the third purpose of the law, and the reason I want to point this out, which is that the law describes God's matchless perfection. The, The law describes our God's perfect love. The law describes our God's perfect righteousness. The law describes our God's perfect justice. Meaning the law is sometimes referred to in Scripture as a mirror into which man can can peer and see himself in comparison to God's perfection. 
In other words, the law that this God-shaped box was intended to carry was to be a mirror that reflected to us our sinfulness and shortcomings in the shadow of the perfect righteousness of God. In fact, this is what Jesus was describing in Matthew chapter 5. He was talking about the law, and he said things like, You've heard it said, the law said, uh, do not commit murder. I tell you, if you even hate someone, you've committed murder. He said, You've heard it said that, that not to commit adultery. He says, But I tell you, if you even look on another with a lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so on. But what I want you to remember is how Jesus concluded his, his treatise on the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus concluded his sermon on the law by saying, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the contents of this God-shaped box tells us about our God. It tells us about His miraculous provision. It tells us about His devastating power. And it tells us about His matchless perfection, which leads us to the last thing this box tells us about our God. Look again at verses 3 through 5. It says, And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side, two rings on the other. And he made poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark. So why did this box need rings and poles? I mean, the whole thing was overlaid with gold, so maybe it was really heavy. This is a handy way to carry it around. Well, no, that's not the answer. This part of this God-shaped box tells us that our God is so righteous, He is so perfect, that He cannot be touched. These poles remind us that mankind is so imperfect, so unclean, so unrighteous that we cannot touch our God. In fact, there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about a man named Uzzah who figured this out the, the hard way. The story is, is that David was transporting the ark to Jerusalem and Uzzah was one of the priests tasked with transportation. And the story says that the oxen stumbled and Uzzah, in fear of the ark falling off the cart and, and getting in the mud, put his hand out to steady the ark. God snatched the life out of him. Now, you might think that's harsh. I mean, Uzzah was trying to keep God's box from falling into the mud. He wasn't trying to do something wrong. But R.C. Sproul says it perfectly when he said this, quote, Uzzah's sin was his presumption that he was cleaner than mud. He believed that mud would desecrate the ark, but mud is just dirt and water obeying God, doing what He told it to do when it comes together. Mud is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the dirt, but to keep the filthy touch of an unrighteous human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt, but God said no and struck him dead. You see, this God-shaped box says that our omnipotent God is so perfectly holy and righteous that He cannot be touched or seen or handled by the likes of sinners like us. 
And that's because our God is so different. He's so other. The word is holy. He is the definition of perfection. And we are imperfect. He is the definition of righteousness. And we are unrighteous. He is the definition of just. And we are unjust. Listen, God is not okay with your faults because you do good things to make up for them. And just like Uzzah, God will not overlook your shortcomings because you had good intentions. In God's eyes, we are sinners simply because we were born. And a God like that cannot be in the presence of people like us without immediate consequences. God is not interested in what you think other people did that caused you to act out like you did. That God cannot be in the presence of people like us without immediate consequences. Otherwise, He's allowing imperfection and unrighteousness and injustice to exist. And therefore, He would no longer be perfect, nor righteous, nor just. Brothers and sisters, the devastating truth that we can see emerge as we gaze on this God-shaped box this morning is this. Our God cannot be in the presence, in our presence, nor we in His, lest we die. And that truth has been proven over and over and over again in Scripture. There's something else this passage tells us about this God-shaped box. Verses 6 through 10 tells us that it's not just a box, but it also has a lid. He says in verse 6, And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half was its breadth. In other words, this God-shaped box doesn't just tell us about our God's perfection and holiness and righteousness. No, this God-shaped box also tells us about our God's mercy, that He wants to be with us. He wants to be in the presence of His people, so He mercifully provided a way for that to happen. You see, this lid was called the mercy seat because once a year the high priest would, would bring blood from the sacrifice of atonement into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on that mercy seat. In other words, the lid is called the mercy seat because it's where God's people received the mercy of being able to be with their God through sacrifice and blood. But there is a huge problem. There is still a huge problem. You see, this God-shaped box said that our omnipotent, perfectly righteous God wanted to be with us. That's what Exodus says. It contains the instructions for the building and for the stuff that would go in it and for this box on which the, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. That's what Exodus defines. But Exodus doesn't say anything about what actions require said sacrifice. In other words, the huge problem is that Leviticus follows Exodus. Meaning this God-shaped box tells us what to do with the blood. It says to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. But then Leviticus tells us how much blood we'll need. It says, no, that's not enough. No, you don't get me. We still need more blood. No, you don't understand. That is not near enough blood. That's what Exodus says. 
And for thousands of years, this problem was amplified. Every year, hundreds of thousands of lambs were slaughtered in obedience to God's command to remember that Passover from Egypt and to satisfy this need for blood in order for us to be with our God. For thousands of years, this took place. Yet it was never enough. It was never enough. The temple court was deep with blood. There were so much lambs. They were being slaughtered. It had to be done next year. And then it had to be done the next year, and the next year, and the next year. For 1,500 years, blood was shed over and over again and sprinkled on this lid, on this mercy seat by the high priest, so that this perfectly righteous, omnipotent God could be near His people. That is, until the angel showed up in a dream to a man named Joseph, a man who was going to break up with his fiancée because he had just learned that she was pregnant, even though they had never slept together. Listen to what this angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? Which means God with us. In other words, the angel told Joseph that this baby would be called God with us. Because he was born to save his people from that which kept them from being with their God. He was born to save His people from their sins. Now what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus would be born to save the people from their sins? It means this. It means that Jesus was born. That He became a baby so that He could have breath in His lungs. Breath in His lungs so He could suffocate. On Calvary. Jesus was born so that he could have hands and feet. Hands and feet for the Roman soldiers to drive nails through on the cross. Jesus was born to save their people, his people from their sins. He was born so that he could have blood pumping through his veins. Blood pumping through his veins so that it could be spilled out on the cross to save you and I from our sins. The sins that keep us from being with our God. Brothers and sisters, this God-shaped box tells us that our perfectly holy, omnipotent, untouchable God not only provided a way for us to be with him, but he provided the means as well. He not only provided the mercy seat, but He also provided the blood that would be sprinkled on it once and for all because Jesus was born to die. 
Therefore, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. That's where God is. That's God's presence. And he did that not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves that, that had not worked for thousands of years, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And he continued, For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, this God-shaped box tells us about the only way that we could be in the presence of our God. It tells us about the only blood that could satisfy the righteous requirement of our God, which means this God-shaped box tells us about Jesus Christ. And it tells us that the real meaning of Christmas was that Jesus was born so that he could die. So what does a box that existed 3,500 years ago mean to us today? What, what does that have to do with our life tomorrow and the next day and the next? Well, as many as you have, have learned, just keep reading the Bible. It has a lot of good stuff in it. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what this means. We don't have to guess. The very next verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's where the presence of God is. We have confidence now to be in God's presence, he's saying, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, listen, verse 22, let us draw near. How? With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. It's the mercy seat. From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, if you want a Christmas gift, let me give one to you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God is not mad at you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he is not frustrated, agitated, or annoyed by you. Ever. It doesn't matter what you do. It only matters what Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews says you can enter the presence of God with confidence. In fact, he commands you, enter with full assurance of faith that Jesus Christ's blood bought you permanently and perfectly into the presence of God. It's not a suggestion. But there's more. The writer of Hebrews then says in the next sentence, the reason we can do this. In verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? 
because he who promised is faithful. In other words, the reason you can always confidently enter into the presence of God is not because you got anything figured out. It's not because you deserve it. It's certainly not because you don't sin anymore. You want another Christmas gift? Here it is. You can't screw this up. The reason you can enter the, pro the presence of God with confidence is because not even you can mess this up. The reason you can enter the presence of God with confidence is because it's not about you anymore. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He is more faithful than you are a sinner. Therefore, as the writer of Hebrews continues in the next verse, see what I'm saying? You don't have to look too hard. It's right there. What else is there for us to do? But let us consider how to stir one, up, one another up into love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why wouldn't we want to be together with those who our God gave so much to be with? Why wouldn't we want to stir each other up to love and good works that were modeled to us by Emmanuel? by God with us, by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope you've seen that this is quite a box. It's a box that says our God is not only omnipotent and perfectly righteous and, and holy, but it's a box that says that God wants to be with His people. It's a God-shaped box that says God sent Jesus Christ so that, so that He could be with us. And listen to me, one day our faith will become sight. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we will not hope in things unseen. We will know who we see. This is a box that says that Jesus Christ was born to die so that we could be in the presence of our God eternally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this gift of your word. I thank you for the truth in it. That you would remind us again how holy and perfect and righteous you are. And how our only hope is in Jesus. But more than that, Father, I pray. I thank you and I praise you for showing us that not only is Jesus our only hope, but he is all the hope that we need. He is more hope than we understand. I look forward to the day, Lord, when you spend millennia and centuries unrolling and, and unpacking for us how perfect, how powerful, How wonderful is our Savior. Father, it's in His name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Fall on your knees now.